How many of you have ever known you should not do something, but done it anyway? Okay, we've got some honest people in the room. Thank you very much. I'm glad to know I'm not alone on this. Uh, I remember when I was 15 years old, it was Christmas time, and I got really upset at my mom. And I stormed out of the kitchen, I went to the living room, and I plopped myself down in the lazy boy chair, just fuming. I can't remember why I was mad. I just remember being so upset that sitting on the end table next to me was this Christmas decoration. It was cut out of wood. It, was, uh, it just said the word Noel. And I just wanted to whack that thing across the room. Now, you've got to understand, I was not a violent child. I, I was actually a fairly compliant child. And, and so I knew sitting there, even at 15 years old, with all the hormones raging through me, that hitting the Noel would not solve anything. Like, it wouldn't really make me feel better. I mean, it wasn't like the Noel had made me mad. It was my mom. But I just wanted to take it out on something. So I'm sitting there telling myself, don't do it. And I did it anyway. And I whacked that thing so hard, it it took a flight across the living room like a lemming jumping off a cliff to its death. And die it did, because it hit the coffee table in the middle of the room and split right between the O and the E. Let's just say this did not soften my mother's heart towards me in any way. But why do we do what we know we should not do? Why is it that when I stand in front of a cake, I'm telling myself, Aaron, you've already had three pieces. You don't need a fourth piece. And somehow another piece ends up on my plate and in my mouth. Why is it that when you agree to go out with your coworkers and they, they say, hey, we're going to go to this restaurant or this bar, and you tell yourself, you know what, I, I've got work tomorrow. I'm not going to drink anything. My spouse wouldn't really want me to have a drink. And yet you end up with a bottle or a glass in front of you. Why is it that when we are so angry that we just want to hurl hurtful words at our loved one. And yet inside our head we're saying, don't say it, don't say it. But we do it anyway. And we watch our spouse or our kid go away in tears or they hurl their own verbal assault at us. Why do we do what we don't want to do? Just this past week, uh, a pastor friend of mine was sharing with a group of pastors, myself included, on this forum. And he said that... uh, About 15 years ago, a gentleman in his church began to have an affair. And so my pastor friend approached him, confronted him about it. And the guy got angry, denied the whole thing, and left the church. All of a sudden, out of the blue, he contacts the pastor 15 years later this week and says, hey, can we do lunch? So they go out for lunch, and the guy basically apologized and said, you were right. I was having an affair. And he just wanted to say sorry for the way he acted and everything he did. So, so my pastor friend began to ask just some questions. It turned out their marriage on the surface looked awesome. I mean, hand-holding, leaning on each other, googly eyes. But it turns out that in the home, behind the scenes, it was a dysfunctional mess. And, and so then my pastor friend asked him, well, how did the actual affair happen? And this is what the guy said to him. We'd had another fight and gone to bed separately for the thousandth time. And I just thought, I'm a man. I have a right to sex. I'm going to have sex somewhere with some woman. I remember exactly his emphasis the moment that my marriage died. And I made the decision. I remember where I was, what I was wearing, even what the room smelled like the moment I made the decision. I didn't even have a woman in mind. I just knew that if I found the opportunity, I was going to do it. I remember it 
like it was last night. Why do people do this? Well, why do we do this? Why do we know that something is not right, it's not good, but we do it anyway? Today, we're going to look at a biblical character that knew what the right thing to do was, and he's going to do the exact opposite. And it isn't just going to be his subconscious that warns him. It's going to be God himself. And he's still going to thumb his nose at God and do what he wants. But the amazing thing is, is that as we look at the story, we're not only going to see Jesus. We're going to discover how you and I can stop doing the things we don't want to do. So, Father, I just pray right now that you would open up our ears, our hearts, our minds to what you want to say. Father, I've put in some time and preparation this week on this message, but now it's, it's up to you. I pray that you would pour forth from my mouth the things that need to be said so that your people here can hear what you want to say to them. Everyone here is at a different place in their spiritual journey. Some have been following you for a long time. Some are kind of new with this. Some may be just kind of investigating. They're a little unsure of what a relationship with Jesus looks like. And I pray today that you would vividly betray yourself to them, that they would see Jesus and they would want to go deeper in a relationship with you. So, Father, use me, use your scriptures, use your spirit. May you just accomplish what you want to in the people that are here today. In Jesus' name, we pray together. Amen. All right, so if you brought a Bible or you've got a Bible app on your phone, open it up to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis 4. If you've got a smartphone and you don't have a Bible on it, I'd encourage you, download one. We recommend the uh, version app. It's also, uh, the website's known as Bible.com. They've got both Android and iOS. They've got multiple translations, so you can find one that is going to help you really learn well. If you're like me and you want to go retro and go paper, we've got two different translations back on the Give and Grow table. When we are done today, you are free to stop by that table, pick up one and take it with you. We would love for that to be your everyday Bible. So whichever one is going to help you most, we would love to put that in your hands. That would be our gift to you. So we're in the kind of early stages of this um, His Story series. It's this series where we're going to spend all of 2017 looking at the entire Bible. And we're going to see Jesus all throughout the pages. We're going to discover that Jesus doesn't appear just in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But he's actually through the entire thing. And we're going to learn that this Bible is not just a library of books. It's not just an instruction manual. It's not just a history lesson. It's actually a story. A story about Jesus. And so, so far, we've looked at Genesis 1 and 2, at the creation of all things, including humanity. And when God created humans, he put his image in them. And what we learned was that that image is Jesus. Jesus himself is that image. But then we learned last week in Genesis 3 that Adam and Eve sinned. And when they sinned, it allowed sin to come in and infect all of creation, including humanity. And that image that was placed in mankind became cracked. It became marred. It became distorted. And so that's the mission that God is on, is restoring his image within humans. And he does it through the gospel. But we also saw last week that when Adam and Eve sinned, the penalty was supposed to be death. But God mercifully allowed their penalty to be transferred onto an animal. That animal was killed, and out of the hide, the skin of that animal, God created clothing for Adam and Eve so that they could be covered. And what we learned was that God has done the same thing for us spiritually. That Jesus went to the cross. He died in our place. Instead of us paying the penalty for our sin, Jesus died for us, and his righteousness now covers us. When we place our faith in Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus now covers us, and we are now blameless in the sight of God. Well, last week we saw sin enter into the story. 
And this week we learned that it doesn't just affect Adam and Eve, and it doesn't just affect work and marriage and creation. It, it actually affected their kids themselves. So let's meet their kids, starting in chapter 4, verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep and a Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. So chapter 4 starts with Adam and Eve taking off the uh, animal skins for at least a night. Nine months later, along comes Cain. And Eve names him Cain because the word Cain in Hebrew sounds like the Hebrew word for gotten or created. Uh, some scholars think that Eve mistakenly thought that she had become like God. Remember when Satan tricked Eve? He said, oh, if you eat of this fruit, you'll become like God. So she mistakenly thought that she had actually created life itself, not realizing what had happened nine months earlier was the cause of it. Other scholars, though, think that she's actually praising God, that as she's naming Cain, she's thanking God for what he has done for her, that he enabled her, he created her body to be able to give birth and she's overwhelmed. She's overjoyed. She now has a baby, a child. Well, as happens with couples who like each other, another kid comes along. This one they named Abel. And this I learned this week. Abel means breath or vapor. It's almost like a foreshadowing of what is about to be. That his life is going to be very short. Well, Adam and Eve actually end up having a number of kids. But Moses, the author, decides to stay with Cain and Abel because their story is very important. And so he, he advances it really rapidly. I mean, we go from them being born to suddenly their jobs. We see that Cain becomes a farmer. Abel, he becomes a shepherd. And it's out of their jobs that they bring an offering to God. And, and if you notice, Cain, when he brings his, it just says that he brings a fruit of the field. There's no descriptors, there's no clarifiers, there's nothing praising it. He just kind of brings it and does it. But when it gets to Abel, you suddenly see all these clarifiers, these descriptors to it. It isn't that he just brings a sheep. It says that he brings the firstborn. It means that the first one born, he actually gives up. Rather than keep for himself, he gives that one to God. And you notice it also mentions fat portions. This week, it seems the commentators are not clear. Some felt that it's actually describing like he would bring a lamb and some fat portions. Like maybe he sacrificed a lamb elsewhere and was keeping some of the meat for himself, but was bringing the fat portions to God. Others, though, they think that he's actually describing the firstborn lamb. That he's bringing the fattest of his firstborns. Like the best of the best. Hebrews 11.4. Uh, Hebrews 11 is actually this famous chapter. Some people call it the Hall of Faith. You've heard of a Hall of Fame? This is the Hall of Faith. It lists biblical character after biblical character who've done these amazing things because of their faith in God. Well, in verse 4, Abel is mentioned. And it says that the reason Abel gives so generously is because of his faith. It was, he, he's fully worshiping God. He's bringing the best because he is just in awe of God. But Cain, not so much. It, it seems that Cain, I mean, he's at least giving, but it seems like Cain's doing it out of duty. He's not giving the best. It seems that Cain 
has a lot of selfishness. He's keeping the best for himself, and he's just bringing a little bit of his leftovers to God. You know, I hate to admit it, but sometimes I'm like Cain. Sometimes I don't quite give God my best. Sometimes it's just doing out of duty. Have you ever just kind of gotten up, you get dressed on Sunday, you go to church because that's what you do, and you just stand there and you kind of mouth the words of the song, you maybe drop a little bit in the plate, you listen politely to the message, but then you leave and it hasn't made a lick of difference. And maybe in your mind you're hoping like, okay, God, I hope that made you happy. I hope that pleased you. The problem is, though, God does not want your duty. He wants your heart. It, it, the, God said through the prophet Isaiah to the Jews, he says, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. God does not just want your duty. He wants you because he put his image in you. That image has been marred, distorted by sin, but through Jesus, that image can be restored. God loves you. He's passionate for you. That's why he doesn't just want your duty. If you're married or you've ever been in a dating relationship, you probably would not prefer the other person to just kind of do things out of obligation. It doesn't exactly make you feel special, does it? And here we've got the creator of the universe who gives us breath and life. He doesn't want your duty. He wants you. He is madly in love with you. So don't worship like Cain. Worship like Abel. Give God your best. And maybe your best might not be that great. So what? Give it. Give him all of you. So then, God kind of makes his feelings known. And Cain senses it. Because he's just given out a duty. Let's see what God says to Cain. Verse 6. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. To me, these words reveal God's love for Cain. He's not letting Cain just go off. He doesn't just like start beating Cain up. He doesn't re you know, reject him. He's saying, Cain, come on, dude. You know better. You're not giving your best. You know the right thing to do. So he warns him. Because it's almost like God's saying, Cain, I sense your frustration. I can see you're angry. I know what you're starting to plan to do. Don't do it. Sin is crouching at the door, ready to master you. So let's see how Cain responds. Verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, well, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? If you're a parent, you've probably had a moment where your child begins to do something. And you can tell the look in their eye that they know that's not the right thing to do. They want to test it out. They, they want to try it out. And so, you, I, you, know, you know how you sound. No. And they suddenly look at you. And they continue to do it. And you say, no. And that's it. The look in their eye, they do it. And you're like, stop. Once someone has their heart set on something, it seems that nothing can stop them, whether a word of a parent or even the word of God. When they want it, they're going to go for it. Cain did not heed God's word. He did not heed his warning. God's saying, Cain, I love you. Don't do it. 
But you see, Cain's heart was for himself. Just as Cain didn't bring God his best because he wanted to keep the best for himself, he wanted to get rid of the frustration, the anger, the, the envy. You know, I heard a great definition this week. I was at a, a cohort of pastors, and our, our speaker uh, was going through some material, and she said, here's the definition of envy, and it, it kind of blew me away. Basically saying that envy is when you want something that someone else has, and, and you feel inferior because you don't have it, but then rather than just trying to get it for yourself, you actually want to see it removed from them. You don't want them to have it either. That was Cain. Cain did not, he, he did not have the favor of God. Abel did. But rather than do what was right to gain God's favor, he decides to just eliminate Abel so that Abel can't have it either. He was envious. And that envy is what drove him to the sin. He became mastered by the sin. And then, do you notice what God did? It, by the way, a lot of this is paralleling what we just saw last week in Genesis 3. Right? God tells Adam and Eve, here's what you don't do. All right? He's told Cain, be careful, don't do it. But Adam and Eve go ahead and do it. Cain's gone ahead and done it. So God has to show up and he has to pronounce the consequences for their sin. But before he did that, God asks them a question. He asked Adam and Eve, where are you? What have you done? Have you eaten of the tree? He gives them this opportunity to come and to repent. He does the same for Cain. Hey, Cain, where's your brother? God knew exactly where Abel was. We learn here in just another verse or two. God knows exactly what's happened. He's giving Cain the opportunity to repent. But Cain was so mastered by his sin, he lies. He plays clueless. Well, I don't know where he's at. Am I my brother's keeper? And that's when God now has to pronounce the consequence. Verse uh, 10. And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. I mean, behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. And then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain lest anyone who found him should attack him. And then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. God begins to pronounce these things. And they sound a lot like what God had to do for Adam. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were cast out of the garden. When Cain sins, he is sent away from the land. And not just from the land, he's sent away from his family. He's basically sent away from his identity. When, when Adam sins, God says to him, work will now be hard. I mean, it, Adam was created to work the garden, but it was going to be easy. It was going to be enjoyable. But now it's, it's going to be hard. For Cain, it's going to be so hard that there are times where he's going to farm the land and nothing will be produced. And he's probably going to have to move again. And, and if you keep reading, you see Cain try to start civilization. He tries to begin building a city. But even then, he doesn't feel settled. Because... 
of his sin. And this is where I, surprisingly, see Jesus. I actually see Jesus in the story three times. And the first one is right here. Because when Cain begins to complain that it's too much, God shows mercy. That's the first place I see it. Jesus is seen in the mercy of God. Think about it. Cain has just murdered his brother. If anyone should pay for their sin, it's Cain. Eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life. And yet, God mercifully allows Cain to not pay the penalty. I mean, it's what he did for Adam and Eve. Rather than make them pay their penalty, pay the death penalty, he allows it to be transferred over to an animal. Now, God again shows mercy to Cain, allowing him to continue to live. You see, mercy is not just something that God does. Mercy is who God is. And that mercy is seen so clearly, so vibrantly through the cross of Jesus. Last week, as we talked about the sin of Adam, we talked about how because of Adam's sin, all humans have sinned. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. So everyone is a sinner and the payment is death. And yet, Jesus went and paid the penalty for us. That is God's mercy. That's Jesus. But we also see Jesus not just in the mercy. I see Jesus also in the mark. There's that really interesting point where Cain says, man, someone's going to kill me. Well, if you've been paying attention to the story, our Western minds will say, okay, well, we've got Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel. Abel's now dead. That means there's really only three humans. Well, not so. Adam and Eve have actually been having a lot of kids. Probably about every nine to 12 months, they have another child. Maybe at the most 18, right? They're just continuing to have children over and over and over So let's just pretend that Cain's 24, Abel's 23. That would mean they probably have at least a dozen brothers and sisters. At least, maybe more. And imagine one of those little brothers looks up to his brother Abel. Because Abel is this incredible guy. I mean, he's just, he's fun to be around. He's a hard worker. I mean, he worships God. I like Abel a lot. And now Cain has just killed off my favorite. Who do you think it is that wants revenge now? This is why Cain fears that one of his own brothers would try to kill him just like Cain killed his brother. But God, in his mercy, says, no, I won't let it happen. In fact, I will put a mark upon you. Now, some ancient rabbis actually thought that the mark was a horn that grew out. I'm sure if I ran into a guy with a rhinoceros horn sticking out of his forehead, um, yeah, I'd probably be like, okay, I'm not touching you. Uh, so some, some paintings, they actually show the horns coming out, and he looks like the devil. Um, but most modern scholars, they believe it was actually some sort of tattoo, S- some indication that as soon as you saw him, you knew, I don't want to mess with this guy. Well, if you are a follower of Jesus, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says that you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. It's like you've been marked. You're, you're branded. And then in John 10, you see Jesus trying to explain the Trinity to, uh, to uh, some of the Jewish leaders. He's trying to help them see, no, the Father and I, were one. I'm, I'm God. We're, we're one together. And as he's explaining this, he says, the Father has given me a people. And these people who believe in me, who follow me, in other words, they're the ones who are marked with the Holy Spirit. They're mine. And to them, I grant eternal life. And no one can pluck them from my hand. It's like to Satan and his minions, the Holy Spirit is a mark upon you. 
And it says, hands off. This one is mine. So if you follow Jesus, you are marked by God. Your salvation is right there for God to see. All of uh, Satan and his minions can tell. That one belongs to the Most High God. I can't touch him. So we see Jesus in the mercy. We also see Jesus in the mark. But I also see Jesus in one more place. I see him in the life and death of Abel. I see Jesus as being the true and better Abel. Here's what I mean by that. Abel brought these generous gifts to God. They they pleased God. Well, at Jesus' baptism, when he comes up out of the water, the Holy Spirit descends down upon him and you hear God's voice. And God says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Also, you see Abel living the life. Even though he's the secondborn, he's living the life that the firstborn should have lived. Well, Jesus, the second Adam, lived the life that Adam should have lived. And then if you really look at it, Abel and Jesus both end up dying because of the sin of the firstborn. Abel's life and death, as brief as it was, as he, though he was just a vapor, a breath, it points to Jesus. Now, as a pastor, as a follower of Jesus, as a Christian nerd, the, these sort of ideas kind of tantalize me. They, they, they get me excited. Uh, they actually cause me to just be in awe of God. It, it increases my trust of the scriptures. I mean, this is taking place a couple thousand years before Jesus ever walked on the earth, and yet here he is. And so this leads me to want to, like, worship God. I'm just in awe. But if you remember, we started this message with a question. Why do we do the things we don't want to do? So how in the world does, like, knowing that Abel points to Jesus, how is that going to help me not buy yet another pair of shoes when I already have 40 in my closet and I'm deep in debt? How is knowing that Jesus is inside the mercy of God or he's there at the mark when I want to just have another drink and I know I shouldn't? How does any of this help? Well, the Apostle Paul in his letter to the church in Rome actually addressed this. And he helps us to see that as we follow Jesus, it empowers us to not live like Cain, but to live more like Christ. So if you know where the book of Romans is, go ahead and flip to it. Romans chapter 7. Romans 7. And if you don't know where it's at, that's fine. I've got it up on the the screen for us. Romans 7, we're going to start in verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions— For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. You know, when I read these words, I have two responses. The first one is, Paul, you're schizophrenic. I I mean, he's like, you know, one moment saying, you know, well, the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, that I end up doing. And it's just like, oh my goodness, Paul, you're mad. And then right at the same time I have that thought, I think, I am way too much like Paul. Because I know there's so many times where I'm thinking, okay, here's, here's what I need to do. I don't do that. But things like, oh, no, I, I really shouldn't do that. Uh, I give in and I do it. I fully understand what Paul is getting at. That, that's why down in verse 24, when he says, wretched man that I am. I'm sitting there shaking my head going, yep, I can echo that. 
wretched man that I am. Then he says, who will deliver me from this body of death? Because it sure can't be me, because I've been trying. I've been trying to escape this pattern of sin. I've been trying to do my best. And yet, the things I don't want to do, those I keep on doing. The things that I know I should do, I don't do. I can't do it. Who in the world can help me? Who can rescue me from this body of death? And that's when Paul says these amazing words. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. God has shown us mercy. He has marked us. We belong to him. You cannot defeat sin on your own. Yeah, you could do it for a while. But long run, you can't. Only Jesus is the response to sin. That's where it's being more like Abel. Giving your best, giving your all. It's like Paul when he says, thanks be to God. It's like he just launches into worship. God, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for the cross. I couldn't do it on my own. I tried and I tried and I tried, but I failed. But you've done it for me. And it leads him to fall on his knees, raise his hands in the air, and say, thank you. Because of what you have done. In other words, the way to combat your sin is to preach the gospel to yourself. You notice what Paul has done there. He's confessing his sin. He's admitting, I can't do it. I keep giving into this. And yet he then falls upon the grace and power and glory of God through Jesus. So when you want to just hurl those hurtful words at someone, you cry out to God. He knows your heart. Just like he could see Cain's heart, he knows yours. And he's saying, don't do it. And you cry out and you say, help me. Help me. Help me to love this person right now like Jesus would love them. When you find yourself tempted to give in to that activity that you know you should not do, you cry out. You say, God, I want to do this right now, but I know it won't be good for me. Help me. Help me to live like Jesus lived. Because when you do that, you are giving God your best. Because you're giving him your heart. Now your prayer is not out of duty. Now it is an honest prayer. It confesses, God, I am a sinner. I want to give into this. But because of Jesus, that sin is forgiven. I do not have to be mastered by sin. My master is Jesus. So I don't have to say those words. I don't have to do that activity. I can be like Christ. That is preaching the gospel to yourself. It is to confess your sin and to fall upon Jesus. So that's how I would like for us to end our time together today. I would like for us to confess. What we're going to do is we're going to read a confession. It all comes from Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is a famous psalm where David, the, the famous king, he uh, gets caught in uh, adultery with Bathsheba. And then, to try and hide it, he has her husband, Uriah, killed. And Nathan the prophet shows up and says, God's seen the whole thing. He knows what's going on. And David falls on his knees, and he repents. And he cries out to God, and he pins this amazing psalm. So I'd like for us to corporately read this together. And as we do, I would like for us to make this our prayer, because this is part of preaching the gospel to ourselves. So would you please join me in reading this? 
Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Father, I just pray right now for anyone who prayed that from the honesty of their heart, that they would know that their sin is forgiven through Jesus, that they right now would realize that sin does not have to be their master, and they don't have to do what they don't want to do, that instead you can create a new clean heart within them, a, a new creation. It's the image of you once again shining forth. You're restoring it for your glory and for our joy. So Father, I just pray right now for anyone that does not know you, that today would be their day of rebirth, the day that they fall on their knees in their heart and they realize that you have shown mercy to them and that you love them despite their sin and you've paid for their sin. And now what you want is for them to give themselves to you because you're not looking for duty, you're not looking for religion, you're looking for hearts. And so right now, they would give their heart to you and they would say yes to following Jesus now the rest of their life. God, I pray for those that already know you, but for whatever reason, they're trapped in sin and they just keep giving in. I pray that they would accept your forgiveness. They would realize that you are their master, not sin. And that they would preach the gospel to themselves. Recognizing that, yes, their sin, it was grave, it was horrible, it deserved death. But yet, through your mercy, you have given us life. You took the payment from us. You took it upon yourself, Jesus. And you now clothe us with your righteousness. You have marked us with your Holy Spirit. So help us to live out that identity and not the identity of a sinner. And Father, I pray too that our church family would be a a church of blessing that you would send those that know you out into their workplaces, into their neighborhoods, into their extended family, and we would be a tremendous blessing, that we would bring this message of hope to them, to let people know they do not have to be mastered by sin, that instead you love them so much that you died for them. But God, as we share that message, would you also give us the joy of watching you open eyes to the reality of this truth, and we could celebrate seeing people come to know who you are, to see them reborn, to see your image begin to shine forth through them. And so, Father, as we come to the communion table, I pray that this is just another act of worship. It is a recognition of your mercy. It's a recognition that we've been marked. It's a recognition of the true and better Abel, who died for the sin of Adam and for me, so that I could be free and forgiven to live the life you always intended for us to live. So, Father, as we partake of this together as one church family, may you be glorified 
may you just continue to draw our hearts and our minds to you as we take, as we eat, as we drink, and as we worship. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.